So last week we ended obviously in verse five and the context there was with elders and shepherds and, and under shepherds. And it ended in verse five with likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the context there of authority in the local church and the leadership, the shepherds, and those of us that are not in that role, that are the sheep, if you will. I talked about sheeping last week, that our role as sheep, as sheep is to, to come under the authority of the elders in the local church. And there was a warning there, uh, quoting Proverbs 3 and 34, about God resisting the proud but giving grace to the humble. That leads right into, obviously, verse 6. In fact, maybe I could have uh, linked verse 6 in last week. But I, I want us to look at verses six and seven this evening in this way, trusting in God. Verses six and seven, trusting in God. Verses eight to 11, we're gonna consider that dealing with the devil. Verses eight and 11, dealing with the devil. And if we've got time, we'll look at the final uh, closing comments that Peter makes at the end of this letter, but we'll just see how our time is uh, then when we get there. So jumping in at verse six, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The therefore, there's a reason it's therefore. You have to look at what comes ahead of that. And I've just talked about what comes ahead of that. The context of submission to leadership in the local church. The quote out of Proverbs 3.34 about God resisting the proud, giving grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. I talked about this last week, but the idea of humility uh, here, humble yourselves, is the idea of bringing yourself low. Um, it is the idea of, th that is the literal, if you, if you can think of a word picture for humility, it is the idea of lowliness and making yourself low. Uh, some of the literal ways of translating that word would be to depress or to humiliate. Now, again, this is not meant that we should uh, you know, hate ourselves or despise ourselves. That is not the thought at all here, but it, but it is about getting our, the perspective of who we are in the right place in context to God. So that when our focus is on God, we understand that God is supreme. God is above. He is superior and we are below that and we are under him. And so we are under his authority. That comes out clearly in that verse. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's an interesting statement, the mighty hand. I think when I was studying this out, I didn't put this in my notes, but I think when I was studying this, there was a reference made to the idea that the word mighty that's used here, I think doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, this idea of the mighty hand of God. But it speaks of the powerful hand of God. And, and it's not just here in the sense that I should be humble under the mighty hand of God because he's so powerful and he's so awesome and therefore I should humble myself before him. That is true. But, but I think we have to see it in light of the context that Peter is writing this letter. And we talked about this earlier, and I'm sure um, in previous um, teaching and different peoples they are working through this letter, the theme of suffering, that these believers, as we've said and repeated, were suffering persecution. They were going through hardship and difficulty. And so they were to submit themselves, they were to humble themselves under the mighty, hand of God. Think about that. 
And in other words, what Peter's saying is that God is powerful. God is mighty. If I could put it this way, God can handle this situation. God is able to deal with anything. He has a mighty hand. In one sense, then, as they're going through this persecution, the question might come up, well, why are we being persecuted then? If God is so mighty and he is so powerful, why doesn't he just intervene and stop this persecution that's coming against us? We may ask the same kind of question in our life when we go through some kind of difficulty or adversity. There are times we go through adversity and maybe we can look at a circumstance in our life and go, well, I can see why I'm going through that. I made these decisions and they're bad decisions and now I'm facing this situation. Sometimes we go through adversity like that, but sometimes we may face difficulty in our life or adversity where we could say, I don't see where I've gone wrong. And, and it's not that we're perfect. That's not, obviously none of us are, but, but there maybe we can't make any direct correlation between the suffering or the difficulty we're going through and what possible reason God could have to allow us to go through that. When we think that way, immediately my mind goes to the story of Job and maybe yours did as well. I mean, Job struggled and wrestled with that all through the book of Job when you read it. The sense that he, he knew he was walking in integrity, not a perfect man, but he could make no link between the difficulty he was going through and why God was taking him through this. And he, and he wrestles with that. He struggles with that. And, and there's times where he's just venting in his soul before the Lord. But, but ultimately what it came down to for Job was getting to the place and, 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 and we see it as he goes through the struggle in that story to come under the mighty hand of God, to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. God was able to intervene. God was able to stop that, but God did not. God allowed it to happen for a purpose. And this is the thing to me that, that jumps out when I, when I see that mighty hand of God here. It's the idea that God is able, if he chooses, to stop the situation from happening. But God is allowing it for a reason. There's a purpose. So I think to see here humility tied with the idea of submission to God's will for my life, whatever that might be. We all want the blessing. We all want the good things. We all want the positive things. None of us want suffering. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we're dealing with the end of chapter four. But God will allow, at times, he may allow suffering and adversity and difficulty in our lives for a purpose. These believers... We're going through an incredible time of trial and God was allowing that. He was, he was purifying his church. He, he was molding it. He, he, was, he was shining the light of, of the glory of Christ through the suffering that these believers were going through. And so God had a purpose even in their suffering. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. There's that general principle throughout the Bible, right? That God delights to use humble people. We see it over and over and over in the word of God. And, and I was thinking this week, um, preparing for this message, why does God delight to use humble people? And, and when you think about people that are humble, you might think, well, they're nice. <laughs> Generally speaking, right? Humble people are usually nice. So maybe God likes to use humble people because they're, they're usually nicer people. They're, and, and they're easier to get along with, right? I mean, if someone's proud and arrogant and pushy, they're obviously harder to get along with. Whereas a humble person is much easier to get along with. But I think it's deeper than that, right? 
I, I think the principle is the reason God delights to use the humble and to exalt the humble is that they are people that are dependent on him. The, the person that is humble before God, humbled under the mighty hand of God, is someone that is surrendered to him and dependent on him and not consumed with themselves and their own desires and their own ambitions. And so there's that, that key element, that key essential of being dependent on God if we're gonna be used of God and not being dependent on ourselves. And the humble walk in that spirit. They walk in that principle of dependence on him. And then of course, the, the promise or the encouragement that he will exalt you in due time, literally to lift us up. The idea of due time is in the right and proper time. And in other words, what is this saying again? Again, all this ties to what? The sovereign purpose of God. They're gonna be going through suffering. And, and if you humble yourself in the right time, God is going to lift you up. God has a plan. Um, again, our suffering, the adversity, the difficulty we go through is not random. The Lord sees and he knows and he cares and he has a plan. The idea of the caring heart of God comes out so clearly in the next verse, right? Again, we think about trusting in God. That means humbling myself before God, surrendering myself to his will and purpose in my life. But it's not without this encouragement that we have a God who cares. <clears throat> in other words, the, the, I think of this as, as Peter writes this, it's, it's not like, well, just humble yourself before God, just submit yourself and just get over it. You know, like, like just suck it up and go through it because God has a purpose. God does have a purpose and we are to humble ourselves, but we're not dealing with a God who doesn't care. We, we have a God who cares. Who, who even when he's allowing us to go through those trials and adversities like these believers, the intense persecution they were facing, he cared about them. I love verse seven. Probably a lot of you uh, quote this verse. It's, it's a verse that's easy to memorize, easy to remember. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The word casting there literally means to throw. And um, some of you may have a translation that, that kind of renders it more that way. When I think about casting, uh, not surprising if you know me, I think about fishing. And when I'm casting and I'm fishing, I've got a fishing line and a, and a rod and a reel, and I've got a line, and I've got some kind of a bait or a lure tied onto the end of that. And when I cast it, I, I flip that rod and release the, the bail arm on my reel or press the button or whatever it is. And the line goes flying and the bait gets thrown away from me out to where the fish are and hopefully I'm going to catch a fish or that's the idea behind casting. But when I'm doing that, I got a line attached to it. And, and I have a reason for that because I want to catch a fish and I want to pull it in. But the idea here of throwing or casting it is to throw something, but it's, you got nothing attached to it. You are, if I could put it this way, to let that thing go and to throw it and to release it, to cast it before the Lord or to cast it on the Lord. I love the wording, casting all your care upon him. This, this is not like just throwing, you know, garbage away or something that's meaningless to us and we're going to throw it away and we don't really care about it. It's casting all your care upon him. In other words, the things that we care about, the things that are important to us, the things that cause us to be worried or anxious or, you know, we can't sleep at night because of this situation or this person 
that is burdening our heart or this difficulty that I'm going through or someone that I love is going through. And, and, and those cares that we have, the Lord says, I want you to cast that care on me. I want you to give that care to me, casting all your care upon him. Why? For he cares for you. We have a God who cares, who cares about us enough that he wants to carry our cares, the worries and the fears and the anxiety. I've thought of that so many times over the years. I remember when my, uh, my daughter Kristen was going to university, um, she's always seemed to me out of all four of our kids to be the one that needs to be protected the most. I don't know why. And, and it is always as a sense as little Kristen, how is she going to function in the world? And she's anyway, she's doing wonderful now. And God is blessing her life. But I remember when she was leaving and going to college and she had a good place to live. And but I remember being very anxious about her and how is she going to be and how is she going to do and leaving home. I remember one day I took her for a, a drive when she had just started college and we, we drove up a side road north of Oshawa. She was going to Durham College in Oshawa. And we stopped on the side of a road and I, I said, honey, you know, I kind of one of those dad daughter talks and kind of poured my heart out. And I said, I'm worried for you, but you know what? I'm putting you in the hands of the heavenly father and he loves you more than I do. And he's going to protect you and he's going to keep you. And uh, anyway, it was one of those really special moments between us, but, but to, to, to cast the care, I thought I didn't care about Kristen. Obviously she, she's precious to me. It wasn't like I was just throwing her out of my life, but I was throwing, if you will, if I could put that, use that term or casting her, my concern for her onto the Lord. Lord, you look after her, you take care of her, and I'm putting the care in his hand. That's what we need to do, brothers and sisters, with our worries, our fears, our anxieties. It's easier said than done, but it's like God is saying, and he's saying to these believers that were struggling, he would say to us, trust me. I just want you to trust me. You just trust me, and you let go of that thing that you think you need to control, or you need to fix, or you need to worry about, and you give that to me, you cast it on me, and I will take care of it because I care for you. It's such a beautiful verse, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's so amazing. So that's trusting in God. Let's get to dealing with the devil, and that might be as far as we get this evening, dealing with the devil. Um, be sober, verse 8, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And I'll leave verse 10 for now. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now remember, understand the context of this letter. These are believers that are suffering intense persecution and opposition. They have been driven from their home. They are fleeing. They have lost possessions. They are paying a high price for their faith in Christ. So that's the context. But it doesn't mean we can't take what is in those verses there, 8 and 9, and apply it to our own circumstances in life. We may not be facing persecution like these believers did, but the enemy wants to get us as well. And he wants to come at us maybe in different ways. So there is this warning, this strong warning in verse 8. Be sober. That means to be alert, to be clear in your thinking. Be vigilant. That means to watch or be watchful or be awake. In other words, the warning is be on your guard because your adversary, the opponent, the enemy, the devil wants to 
destroy us, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Just want to comment on this, that it is the devil who is our adversary. It is not people. Um, it is easy in some circumstances to see people as the enemy. Uh, that could be, you know, clearly, obviously, for these believers, maybe the, the soldiers that were pursuing them or the people that were bringing false accusations against them, um, the Roman emperor, that Nero, that would eventually, you know, spin lies to uh, create this persecution against the Christians. They very easily could be seen as the enemy, but really they were not the enemy. They were agents of the enemy being used in his purpose. <clears throat> but the enemy is the devil. We know that because of what we read in Ephesians 6.12. Let me just read it for you. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are engaged in a spiritual conflict. The enemy is, a, is, spirit, is spirit, the devil is a spirit. He is a spiritual being and his forces, that's the enemy. Does he use people? Yes, but people themselves are not the enemy. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. I think that can help us. I know it certainly helped me in the past when I've dealt with people that were difficult that I felt like were opposing me or accusing me, and I could very easily see them as being the enemy. And yet really the enemy is the power behind that. And to be able then, I think that gives us the capacity to be able to pray for those people who could be perceived even as our enemies and to have compassion for them, because we realize that they are deceived, they are blinded by the enemy himself, and they are simply being used in his purpose. That's an important concept to keep in mind. So our adversary is the devil. Notice that he walks about like a roaring lion. Um, in Job chapter 1 and verse 7 and, and, and chapter 2 and verse 2, twice as Job appears with the sons of God before the Lord, the Lord says to him, basically, Satan, where have you been? And he says, walking up and down or walking to and fro in the earth. And the picture there of the enemy, like this restless being that is just moving around the planet the world going wherever he can basically to destroy and to disturb the lives of people in any way that he can one of the things that is important too and i think it's it's maybe a bit of an encouragement for us because when we start dealing with topics like spiritual warfare the devil satan almost this fear can come up in our hearts like you know he's everywhere and he's no he's not everywhere let's understand that Satan is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. Well, the devil knows everything. No, he doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. He's powerful. Yes, he is, but he's not all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. And while we have to have a massive respect for our enemy, and he is powerful, and he is wise, and he is subtle, and he is active in trying to destroy our lives and the lives of followers of Christ, and the lives of people that don't follow Christ as well, understand he is limited he is limited he can only do so much and we see that so beautifully in the story of job as job goes through that terrible trial god is the one who draws the boundaries and again we see the sovereign purpose of god in that but he is walking about going wherever he can like a roaring lion the picture there is of a predator um 
the idea of devouring literally means to swallow down. So this roaring lion, this predator, is seeking whom he may devour or literally swallow or destroy. I've never faced a roaring lion ever. Physically, I mean like a real literal lion. I've seen bears in the wild, but I've never been chased by a bear. I know people that have, though. There's a good uh, friend of mine from Bancroft, and he spent all of his life pretty much working in the bush. He's, he's a real outdoorsman. And uh, he was chased by a bear probably about 10 years ago. And it terrified him. He said, I've never been more frightened in my life. And this is a guy that's in the woods all the time. He's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. And he said, I've never been more terrified in my life. That bear was chasing me. It didn't get him. And it's a, quite a story of how he got out of the situation, but it terrified him. And, and when the predator is coming after someone, it is a terrifying situation. The picture here of the roaring lion, it's like the charging lion. This, this is like the enemy no holds barred. This is like wide open warfare here. When we think of the devil, usually his strategies are much more subtle. Deception is the key strategy of the enemy. To deceive, it's very subtle. It's not maybe obvious. It's, it's a sideways thing. When we think about temptation, it may not be the obvious thing. And the enemy is often, often subtle in how he deals with people trying to destroy them. But in this scenario, he's the roaring lion. And I think that metaphor connects perfectly with the circumstance that these people are going through. Because again, they are being persecuted. They are being directly and viciously persecuted in the day that they're living in. So it's like the roaring lion, the lion's coming right at them. There's no deception here. There's no camouflage. I'm just coming right at you. When you think of the, if you've ever read anything about the times of persecution in the church, um, you, you, you know there's just this wide open aggression of the enemy against the people of God. And we see it even today in parts of the world where there are believers that are facing this kind of thing. So here, here this, this picture of devouring, it could be literally physically in the sense of the persecution, taking the lives of the believers, the adversity pressing in on them. But I think in, in many ways, if, if we want to put this maybe in more in the context of our lives, the enemy seeks to devour us, maybe more, maybe not as much physically, but even more psychologically, spiritually, right? The, the oppression of the enemy that comes into our lives, the discouragement that the enemy can bring into our thinking, the, the disillusionment that the enemy can bring against us. And, and, and all of that is, is with that this desire to, to devour to, if you will, destroy us, our lives, maybe not physically destroy our lives, but spiritually destroy us so that we are ineffective for the Lord, so that we are paralyzed by fear. We're not walking in faith so that maybe even in some situations that there are believers who at one time were walking strongly with God, who walk away, so to speak, and are not walking with the Lord as they were before. The enemy is so good at doing that. And we have to be vigilant. We have to be sober and be watching for that. I think generally, I think we would all agree with this and understand this, that while the enemy may target believers more than others because we represent Christ in this world, and I think that puts a target on every one of us who follow and know Christ, but that doesn't mean that he's not concerned about the unsaved. He wants to keep them in blindness and darkness and destroy their lives whatever way he can do that. And so we have this work of the enemy, and, and you think of really obvious things like drug addiction, 
and alcohol, sexual sins, abuse, broken families and marriages. I mean, you can just go down the list of, of wreckage, if you will, of humanity that we see. And, 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 and it comes often through the attack or the influence, the deception, the lies of the enemy to destroy the lives of people. That the devil wants to destroy humanity. We are made in the image of God, and because of that, he hates us, and he wants to destroy us. And if he can keep people on blindness and darkness, so much the better for him. So what do we do about this? Well, verse 9 says, resist him. Resist him. Again, that sounds so incredibly simple, doesn't it? When, when you face a, uh, an, a, an attack of the enemy, a spiritual uh, attack, it seems like, well, just resist. Just, what, what does that mean? The idea of resist here means to set against or to withstand, or if I could put it this way, to stand. Quite simply, stand against the devil, his lies, his deception, his attack here for these believers, the persecution, it didn't mean that if you know a soldier came through the door, they weren't going to be arrested and taken to prison, or that their things might have not have been confiscated and taken away, and they might have lost that. But they were to stand on their faith in Christ and stand in the Lord, in spite of what they were facing, what they were dealing with. It's interesting that in Ephesians six, and I read out of that chapter earlier three times in Ephesians six, what are we told? concerning the attack we face spiritually from the powers of darkness. Well, we're told we're to fight, right? We're to fight back. We're not told that. We're told to stand. Stand, withstand, stand. Just stand against the enemy. Resist him. And I think of three basic things in resisting or standing against something. Number one, a decision. It's like, it's like you reach a point where you say, enough enough and i'm going to stop this now and it's like maybe the lord has to bring us to a breaking point or a place in our life where we recognize it. it's the enemy that's doing this in our life and enough is enough and there's a decision secondly there's a determination an intentionality in our life to resist the devil to be conscious of the fact that the enemy is working against me in this purpose and i'm going to stand against that now we have to be careful because sometimes we want to project the devil onto every bad situation in the world. And so I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about where we are clearly and obviously under some kind of spiritual oppression to recognize that and to, to decide to stand against this and to determine to be intentional, to resist the enemy and to withstand his oppression or his temptation or whatever it is that he's bringing against us. And then finally, the third thing, and to me, this is the key thing, dependence. In other words, it's this, I can't, I can't beat the enemy myself, I can't. It's only Christ in me that is going to give me, be able to give me the grace to stand against the attack of the enemy, whatever that is. Decision, determination, dependence, resist him, stand against him, steadfast in the faith, solid, stable, strong. It's almost like Peter is saying, you get to a place where you're just gonna stand and no matter what, no matter what the enemy does, no matter what the, the attack is, I'm gonna stand in Christ. I'm gonna be steadfast in the faith. And then I love this, I love what he says. He says, knowing, uh, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. What is he saying there? You're not alone. You're not the only one that's suffering. 
you ever, you ever notice that sometimes when you go through some kind of difficulty or adversity, you think, I'm the only one. Have you ever felt that way? Does anyone else know what I'm dealing with or understand what I'm going through? And, and again, I think it's one of the deceptive tactics of the enemy to isolate us, to make, to make us think like, well, you're the only one that's thinking that way and you're the only one that's going. And that is not the case. We are not alone in whatever form of suffering it is that we're going through. For these believers, it was the persecution. Peter's saying there's other believers that are suffering like you are in the world. You're not alone. There's a sense of comfort in that, that the same sufferings that we're going through, there are others that are going through similar sufferings. And then because of time, I want to jump right to verses 10 and 11, because I definitely want to deal with these verses before we close. I think verses 10 and 11 are really a prayer. Um, it is a prayer for strength to endure. And that makes perfect sense when you think again of what these Christians are facing, right? Um, I love I love the wording of this prayer. but And, and Peter says, but may... The God of all grace who called us. Think about that phrase, the God of all grace. When we think about grace, we think of the cross. We think of forgiveness. We've been brought into the grace of God. And that's true. And, and that certainly is maybe one way to apply that. But I think maybe the better way to apply the word grace here is the idea of grace. And, and grace is one of those words, Karis, it's got a lot of different applications. And I think here the application of that word has more to do with enabling that God is going to enable you. God is going to give you an ability. God is going to give you a strength to endure. He's the God of all grace. He's called you. He's called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Notice the shift and the focus to the eternal, to the heavenward. In other words, you're suffering in this world. You're suffering in this life. He's called you to something better. He's called you to a life to come, an eternity that's what your destiny is in Christ Jesus. And notice, I think, and this, this follows right along with that, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. After you have suffered a while, how long were they going to suffer for? A day? Well, we don't know. Seven days? A month? Seven months? Seven years? All of their life, maybe, they would face opposition and difficulty? And regardless of how long that was, again, again, we go back to what? God's sovereign purpose. And wouldn't we all want to live in a time where life is easy? And generally speaking, let's be honest, for those of us living in this country, in this age, life is easy. And there have been times in the history of the church that's been terrible to be a Christian and difficult in terms of suffering and opposition. And in parts of the world today, we know, right? Believers face great extremity of suffering. But regardless, even in that circumstance, what does he say? You've suffered a while. What is the implication here? It is temporary. That, that, that stands against, or it is juxtaposed against the idea of the eternal. There's an eternal glory, but there's a temporary suffering that you're going through now for a while. How long? Well, you leave that to me. You humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You just follow me, you walk with me, you cast your care upon me, and just know that it's only going to be for a while. There's a day coming. It will end. While you're going through this, I'm praying, Peter says, that this suffering you're going through will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The idea of perfecting to complete you, again, God has a purpose in molding us and transforming us through suffering. 
to establish you. To, the idea here of being set or to make fast or to stand. And I always think about setting a post in concrete or something like that when I think of that word there to establish. The idea is strengthen, literally, obviously, to make us strong. And then I love this word settle. That word settle means to lay a foundation. And it's almost like it's almost like as you go, you're going through the suffering and it's going to it's going to complete you and it's going to make you stronger and it's going to settle your life. It's like it's laying a solid foundation for you and your life and your testimony that you will not be moved, that you would not be moved, that you would not be moved as you go through this difficulty and this adversity. And then finally, verse 11 to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whatever victory we have as we go through difficulty, adversity, suffering, whatever it might be, whatever victory these believers would have, whatever victory we have, all the glory goes to God. All the glory goes to him. Final greetings, verse 12, Silvanus, faithful brother, perhaps Silas, uh, had served Paul, now is serving Peter. He's the one that's going to take this letter back to these believers. Verse 13, she who was in Babylon possibly the church in Rome, possibly Peter's wife in Rome. Some people think it's literal Babylon. Regardless, it's not a point that we need to argue too much about. Then Mark, literal or spiritual son, probably a spiritual son, likely John Mark. Paul had rejected John Mark. Barnabas had taken him under his wing in, in the book of Acts. Paul later commends Mark uh, for his faithfulness. So he rebounds in, in his walk with God, his service to God. Now he's with Peter. Um, he's perhaps a relative of Peter's. Uh, he is a translator for, for him, apparently. I did a little research on why he was there with Peter. And likely, maybe even during this time, he's writing the Gospel of Mark, because what we know from what history would tell us that Mark got his information from the Apostle Peter. And so that's maybe what's going on. Finally, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. The idea of physical affection appropriately and with purity between the believers. I'm going to stop there and um, we will leave it at that. Let me just pray then before we close. Father, again, we thank you for your word and I pray, God, that it would have make some difference in our hearts tonight. Thank you that we can trust you. Help us to trust you in all things. Father, thank you that even though we have an enemy that would seek to destroy us, uh, you give us the grace, Father, and, and that we would seek you, that we would resist the devil, and that we would seek you, Father, in your strength and your grace and your help in this battle that we are all engaged in. Help us to be vigilant. Help us to be sober. And, Father, give us the strength and grace we need until the day, until the time that we're with you. We look forward to that. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.